0: Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you. Uh, Why don't you join me one more time briefly in prayer, and then we will look at God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and ask that you would show us your grace, that you would impart to us your wisdom by your Spirit through your Word that you would bring eternal new life and that you would sanctify your people and remind us of the new life that we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. You'll find the beginning of our passage on page 23 in the Black Pew Bibles that we've provided. We're gonna be considering Genesis 29, verse 31, all the way through chapter 30, verse 24. And I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it here in a few moments. And I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time because we'll be looking often at the passage this morning. Uh, I, I wonder if you've ever encountered obstacles in the accomplishment of some big plan in your life. Maybe you have plans to rehab your house, and you begin the rehab process but run into unexpected obstacles like a foundation that needs to be fixed, or electrical wiring that's out of code, or walls that you plan to remove that you come to find out they are actually load-bearing. Now, maybe it's an obstacle in an entrepreneurial or business venture. You have big plans to start a business, but you run into obstacles like, where am I going to get funding for all the money that I need? How am I going to find people with the expertise to do X, Y, and Z? Because when I started this venture, I didn't realize that these tasks would need to be done, and I have no expertise in those areas. When we have plans, we often encounter obstacles. Now, I think it's normally the case that these obstacles can be overcome with a little thought and a good bit of stick we find a way around or over the obstacles. But there are times in life when we encounter obstacles that we simply can't get over or around. A hurricane hits during your planned beach vacation not an obstacle you are going to work through. Canceled flights for your business trip and there are no other flights available or connecting flights to where you're going. Insufficient funds to sustain your business venture. Chronic illness that there's no answer for. A relationship that's broken beyond repair. There are times when we encounter obstacles that we simply can't get past. But God never encounters obstacles that he can't overcome. In fact, one of the key storylines in our study through Genesis so far is how God overcomes every obstacle to accomplish the fulfillment of his promises to his people. I mean, you think about some of the obstacles he's overcome so far in Genesis. In Genesis. He has overcome homicide. Cain murdered Abel. He has overcome worldwide rebellion. Think Noah and the flood. He has overcome worldwide idolatry. Think the Tower of Babel. He has overcome drunkenness, foolishness, fear, lying, warmongering kings, marital unfaithfulness, cheating, barrenness, old age, and even death itself. Thus far, the story of Genesis has in part been about God overcoming every obstacle to bring about the fulfillment of his promises to his people. And our passage this morning is another wonderful example of that. So if you have your Bible open in front of you, I want you to follow along as I read the passage for us now. Again, we're looking at Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, all the way through. Genesis 30, verse 24, this is God's word. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So she lay with her, so, so he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived, and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. And God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. If you're taking notes, the main lesson of our passage this morning is that God's promises prevail in the face of the obstacles of suffering and sin. Main lesson of our passage this morning is that God's promises prevail. In the face of suffering and sin. What we're going to do with the rest of our time is walk through the passage. I'm going to explain it as we go. Then we're going to consider how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus. And then we're going to consider a few points of application for our lives today. So let's go ahead and take a look at the passage together. Look with me at verse 31 of chapter 29 says there, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So our passage this morning is picking right up on the drama that started in the previous passage. Last week, we learned that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel, but Laban, Rachel's father, tricked Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter, Leah, before he allowed Jacob to marry the younger daughter Rachel. And then at the end of that passage we read that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Uh, but it's not just that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. it's that Leah was hated, uh, unloved, uncared for, neglected by Jacob. Uh, but we see in the passage, even though she may seem or feel invisible to her husband, She isn't invisible to God. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. If you think back to uh, the interaction between Sarah and Hagar, when Sarah cast Hagar out into the wilderness where she was probably going to die, the Lord saw Hagar's plight in the wilderness and came to her aid. In the same way, he sees Leah's plight and he comes to her aid and he gives to her children. At the same time, we also learn that Rachel, her sister, was barren. She was unable to have children. And this verse right here really sets up for us the hot mess that we encounter in the rest of this passage, and it really is a hot mess. In verses 32 to 35, if you're following along, we read about the birth of Leah's first four sons. She gives birth to Reuben, then Simeon then Levi, and then Judah. And I want you to see how clearly the brokenness of Leah's relationship with Jacob comes through, even in the birth of her children. Notice what she says as she names her first three sons. Look at verse 32. Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. He doesn't love me, but maybe he will love me now. That's what comes through in the name of her first son. That's what she's naming him. Now look at verse 33. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. The name Simeon reflects the fact that she is hated by her husband. Now verse 34. Now this time, this time, it didn't happen with the first, first child or second child. Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. She's so desperately wants to be loved by Jacob, that the names of her first three sons all express a longing for him to show her some level of affection, some level of love, some level of commitment. It's not until her first fourth son, Judah, in verse 35, that she finally just gives praise to God without mention of a relationship to Jacob. And then I want you to see, notice here how Rachel responds in verse one of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she cast herself on the mercy of God and waited for him to act. Wait, that's not what it says, does it? Oh, oh, here we go. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she entrusted herself to God's will, knowing that he would withhold no good thing from her. That's not what it says either, does it? When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob, no children, she envied her sister. She was filled with jealous anger. She wanted the children that Leah had and she takes it out on Jacob. Give me children or I will die. You kind of want to step in and just say like, actually, you won't you won't die, but you, get, you you can see the anger and the envy coming through there. Give me children or I will die. And Jacob, rather than responding with grace, rather than responding with forbearance, fires right back at her in anger. His anger was kindled. Am I in the place of God? Children come from him. I can't control this. And while that is technically true, The fact that he fires back at her in anger undermines any potential for his words to bring healing and peace, undermines any potential for him to redirect her envy towards seeing all the other ways that God has provided for her, and it just goes from bad to worse. Rachel makes the same terrible decision that Sarah made In Genesis 16, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. If God isn't going to provide for me a child, I'm going to give to my husband my servant. So she invites her servant into their marriage so that she might have children through her. The servant has two sons, and notice what Rachel names them. Look at verse 6 again of chapter 30. God has judged me. God has vindicated me. And he's also heard my voice and given me a son. Now look at verse eight. Just straight up out in the open. I'm naming my son with mighty wrestlings. I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. She she basically names her sons vindicated and victory. Right, take that, Leah. God has vindicated me and has given me victory over you. You see the anger and the envy and the jealousy pouring out in the names of her children. But it keeps getting worse. In verses 9 to 13 of chapter 30, not to be outdone by her sister, Leah brings her servant into their marriage with Jacob. There are now four women involved. She has two more sons through her servant and look at their names. Verse 11, you you can just see them now firing back at each other through their kids' names. Good fortune has come. Verse 13, happy am I, for women have called me happy. This is an all-out battle of the names. They are feuding with each other in the names they've given their sons, uh, kids. Uh, I, I don't know if you have siblings or just with other kids. Have you ever beaten your sibling in a game or outwitted them in some way? Maybe you stick out your tongue when your parents aren't looking, or you do kind of this. I outwitted you. I beat you. I got the best of you, right? When you do that, hey, let's just hit pause real quick. That's not good. That's wrongful boasting. But I bring it up because adults do it too at times in our own adult way. And that's what Rachel and Leah are doing here with the names of their sons. You could, you could put it another way, kind of in, in kind of like modern English. Well, I've named my kids, ha, and take that. Oh, yeah? Well, I name my kids, I win, you lose, loser, right? That, that, that is what they're saying. Leah responds, happy, good fortune has come. My life is better than your life. This is what they are doing here in the passage, and it keeps getting worse. The battle continues. In verse 14, Reuben, Leah's oldest son, brings home some mandrakes from the field. You're like, what? why on earth do we need to know this? What is going on with this root vegetable? Why do we need to know about mandrakes? But it's actually not surprising that mandrakes appear in this passage because in the ancient Near East, they were thought to aid in fertility. So Reuben is bringing some home, Rachel sees that he brought some mandrakes home, and she's like, give me some of those mandrakes. She hasn't yet had a child of her own. Only two children through her servant. She wants a child of her own. She thinks the mandrakes might help. And rather than have mercy on her sister, rather than generously giving to Rachel out of her own abundance, what does Leah do? She jumps on it as an opportunity to get what she wants. I'll give you some mandrakes, which you need to give me Jacob for, in return for a few nights. You can just see how broken their marriage is. She's got to barter with her sister just to have a few nights to spend with Jacob. This is a messed up situation. They make the deal. Rachel resorts to relying on mandrakes to have a child, and Leah tells Jacob that she's purchased him for the night. She ends up having two more sons with Jacob, but look at verse 20. This is actually sad and painful as much as there is terrible sin going on in this chapter. Look at the name of the final child she has with him in verse 20. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me. She is still longing for the love and affection of her husband. Six children, I mean, mean, how many years have passed at this point? She is still longing for that love. And then finally, in verse 22, we read not that the mandrakes worked and that she was able to get pregnant, but God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Honestly, it's kind of hard to figure out how to read that. Whether it should be read with a, a sense of like genuineness, yes, add to me another son, or discontentment. I got one, now give me another. I still want to catch up to my sister. I, I don't know how to read that there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards reading it as a, a statement of discontentment, giving all that all else that's going on in the passage. This entire scene is a giant, hot mess. I mean, we have to recognize, though, that part of it involves genuine human suffering. You have the suffering of a woman involved in a marriage with a man who is described as hating her. Then, through the course of her marriage, She so desperately wants uh, his love that she gives her children names that essentially tell the world that her husband doesn't love her. Not only that, he never comes around. By by, By the time of the birth of her sixth child, he still isn't showing her honor or love. He never warms up to her. Well into their marriage, she has to pay for him to sleep with her, and when her last child is born, she's still longing for that honor and that love. Not only that, you have the suffering of barrenness. Rachel is barren. She desperately wants children of her own, and she has to watch as every other woman in the scene seems to have children with ease. Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah—they're they're, just—they're able to get pregnant and produce children quickly. And she's standing by, watching this happen. It's like everyone's able to get pregnant, but her. There is genuine suffering going on in this chapter that we have to acknowledge and take into account. But there's also lots of sin happening here. And we can't miss that. You have the sin of what I'll call the idolatry of discontentment. As painful as Leah's situation must have been with Jacob, we also can't miss how she is constantly grasping for Jacob's approval, honor, and love throughout their entire marriage, and only with one of her children does she give praise to God. It's just, if, if only I get this, if only I get this, if only I get this, then maybe I'll be happy. Only one of her children does she respond with genuine praise to God. She's focused on what she doesn't have rather than what she does have and what God has given her. Rachel struggles with the same thing. She so desperately wants children that she'll do anything to get them. And then when she finally gives birth to to her first one, she says, it's not enough. Not enough. May the Lord add to me another one. I want more, God. You don't just have the idolatry of discontentment. You have outright envy. You have anger. You have a hateful husband who won't love the woman he's married to. You have a passive husband who won't lead either of his wives in the way that they should go. You have adultery. You have infighting and feuding. You have an unwillingness to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And yet, in the face of suffering and sin, God's purposes and promises prevail. I wonder if you notice the drumbeat of God fulfilling his promises to his people in the face of suffering and sin. That just is shot through this chapter. Look at chapter 29, verse 31. God came to Leah's aid and opened her womb. Chapter 30, verse 17, God listened to Leah and she bore a child. Chapter 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Throughout the passage, God is referenced in connection with the birth of Leah and Rachel's children because Moses wants us to see that in the face of sin and suffering, God's promises prevail The presence of suffering and sin are no obstacle to God fulfilling his promises to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abram and to all of his people. Why is God being mentioned in connection with the birth of these children important to us? We have to remember that God promised that Jacob's offspring would be more numerous than the sand of the seashore and that through him all of the nations would be blessed. And he is fulfilling that promise in this passage. You have 12 sons born to these women. 12 sons of Jacob born in the midst of this difficult situation who would grow to become the heads of the tribes of the nation of Israel. A nation that would grow to be so numerous that Balaam would later describe them in numbers as more numerous than the sand on the seashore. They are more numerous than the dust of the earth, more numerous than the stars in the heavens above. And yet these sons and the nation that would come from them would also walk in the footsteps of their mom and dad. These sons will soon envy their brother Joseph and attempt to murder him. They would feud and fight with one another And then the nation of Israel that comes from these 12 sons would also be marked by the same struggles throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. There would be the sufferings of barrenness, broken marriages, sickness, disease, and other calamities. And the nation would be marked by struggles with envy, idolatry, adultery, discontentment, feuding. Infighting, anger, you name it. And yet, the suffering and sin that characterized the nation as a whole over nearly 1,500 more years of Old Testament history didn't stop God from keeping his promises to them. Most importantly, their suffering and sin didn't stop God from keeping his promise to send the long-awaited Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who God sent into the world to crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. His ministry was a living display of the fact that God's promises prevail even in the face of suffering and sin. Right in the Old Testament God promised that the coming Messiah would relieve his people's sufferings by healing the blind, the deaf, the lame and lepers. Isaiah says he would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and that is exactly what Jesus did in his earthly ministry and beyond. Is it not? He cleansed lepers. He Opened the eyes of the blind. He caused the lame and the paralyzed to walk. He opened the ears of the deaf. He loosed the tongues of the mute. He healed chronic illnesses and he raised people from the dead. God's promises in Christ prevailing over suffering. Suffering is not an obstacle to God. Not only that, but in the Old Testament, God promised that the Messiah would also take away our sins he would be pierced for our transgressions he would be crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and that is what we see happen at the culmination of Jesus's ministry he went to the cross to bear our punishment he died the death that we deserve but he didn't stay dead in the face of his own suffering and the sacrifice that he made for sin, God's promises still prevailed because God promised that the Messiah would rise from the dead and Jesus did just that. He rose in power, displaying to all that God's promises will always prevail it doesn't matter what obstacle stands in the way of God accomplishing his promises. It doesn't ha- matter how great the suffering is. It doesn't matter how great the sin is. God God, and his promises always overcome the obstacles that seem to stand in his way. And Jesus rose from the dead. He called to all people everywhere, telling them to repent to turn from sin and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And those that do will not only be forgiven, justified, adopted, and made righteous once for all, they will also be granted the assurance that no matter the suffering they endure and no matter their continued struggles with sin, God's promises to them will prevail in the face of suffering and sin. And with the time that we have left, I want us to meditate on that reality and what it means for our lives. I want you to consider how this passage teaches us that God's promises prevail in the face of suffering. Notice again chapter 29, verse 31. The Lord saw that Leah was hated. Right? Leah experienced the suffering of being in, in a marriage with a man who is described as hating her. And we see the, the, the pain of her suffering come through and how she names her children, just longing for him to love her. When we come to the sixth and final child final child that she gives birth to here, at least in Scripture, she's still looking for her, her husband to show her some honor. But it's not just Leah who's suffering, right? Rachel is also suffering. We saw how she was barren, unable to have children that she had to endure the pain of watching seemingly every other woman around her have multiple children with ease. Not only that, but in her culture, barrenness was connected with shame and disgrace. It was a a stigmatized condition in a sense, which is why in chapter 30, verse 23, after she has her first child, she says, God has taken away my reproach. He has removed my, my shame. These women, members of God's chosen family in different ways endured suffering. Suffering in all of its varied forms isn't something that God's people are exempt from experiencing. I know some of you are experiencing different forms of suffering today. Maybe you're experiencing a suffering like Leah Maybe you're in a marriage that is broken. It doesn't seem like it's gonna get better. Maybe, like Rachel, you long to have children but are struggling to get pregnant. Maybe you're experiencing the suffering of battling disease or chronic illness or seemingly just debt that is stacking up to the sky and you don't know how you're gonna overcome it. Maybe you're battling unemployment, things just keep falling through for you professionally. Maybe you're experiencing loneliness or constant battles with anxiety and depression or addiction of some sort. There are so many different ways that we might suffer in the course of our lives. And while I can't say that I know exactly why this is happening to you, I can say with confidence that all things, including your suffering, work together for good for those who are called according to God's purposes. But not only that, I want you to know that God isn't unaware of your sufferings. We see again in verse 31 of chapter 29, the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Throughout Scripture, when God sees his people in need, it communicates his personal care, his personal attention, and his Personal commitment to act on their behalf we see this throughout the passage the Lord looks upon Leah's affliction the Lord hears Leah's cries or look at chapter 30 verse 32 God remembered Rachel God listened to her and opened her womb God took away her reproach when it says that God remembered Rachel it's not because he forgot her When that word is used, it means God is acting on the promises he made in the past and bringing about their fulfillment. Just like God promised Noah that he would preserve him through the flood, when the flood comes, we're told that God remembered Noah and delivered him. And to my friends who are suffering today in different ways, I want you to know that your sufferings are not missed by God. They're not lost on him. He is personally aware of the sufferings you're enduring. He doesn't just look down and see a mass of people who are suffering. He sees you, each of you, individually. He sees you, and he's aware of what's going on in your life. He sees your suffering. He hears your cries. He will not forget you. He remembers and will deliver all of his people. Now, now that deliverance from your suffering may not happen right away. We'll have to see this in the passage. Rachel waited for years for her first child of her own. Scripture and experience requires to acknowledge that you also may never be delivered from the sufferings you are experiencing, at least on this side of heaven. Leah never saw her relationship with Jacob change. She was never honored, never loved. But whether we experience some relief from our sufferings or never experience relief from our sufferings on this side of heaven, our sufferings won't stop God's promises from prevailing. He will complete the good work that he began in you. He promised it. As mysterious and difficult as it may be for us to confront, our sufferings are actually one of the chief ways he does that. But not only will he complete the good work that he began in you, he will ultimately deliver you from your suffering. Death won't stop God from keeping his promises to you. We've seen that throughout Genesis. There's a Japanese art form known as kintsuge, I trust I'm mispronouncing that. I'm trying my best. Kintsuge is the uh, art of repairing broken pottery by mending the cracks and fissures with gold. So let's say you have a piece of pottery that breaks. Instead of throwing it away, uh, which is what I would do, uh, you take it to a skilled kintsuge artist, and what they will do is they will piece it back together, and they will carefully mend the cracks and fissures using gold, and the finished products, if you've never seen them, are amazing. They're stunning. They're more beautiful than the original piece of pottery. Friends, your sufferings may feel like a breaking and a crushing. You may feel like a broken piece of pottery, but God is the master kintsuge artist, He is carefully mending the cracks and fissures and when his promise to raise you from the dead and bring you into the new heavens and new earth prevails, you will see that through your sufferings, he has created something far more beautiful than the original. God's promises prevail in the face of human suffering and they also prevail in the face of sin. It's impossible to miss the fact that God keeps his promises to a people who are so openly sinning against one another. From envy to discontentment to boasting to anger to marital infidelity, the sins in this chapter are open and obvious, and just as open and obvious as the sins are, so is the mercy and grace of God who keeps his promises to his chosen but still struggling with sin people. Friends, if we have anything to take from this chapter, we should take away the fact that sin won't stop God from keeping his promises to his people, right? So, so does that mean that we should go on sinning that God's grace may abound, John, since it, my sin won't stop God from keeping his promises? Right, by no means. Right, what does Paul said? We who have had our eyes open to, the, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, we who have had our eyes open to the goodness of God's holy law, we who have been transformed by the indwelling presence of God's very own spirit should say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Yet, at the same time, we know that we will continue to struggle with sin. What does John say? If anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth isn't in him, right? Peter struggled with sin. Paul struggled with sin, even calling himself the chief of sinners at the end of his life. The New Testament church struggled with sins like envy, boasting, anger, marital infidelity, basically everything that we see here. And if we're honest, there are times where we struggle in much the same ways. And yet, in spite of that, In spite of our continued struggles, God's mercy and grace continue to abound and overflow to us in Jesus Christ. God continues keeping his promises to us and fulfilling his purposes in us, even in the face of our sins. His promise that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ still prevails for you, even if you've struggled with sin today. His promise that he will lose none of whom the Father has given to him still prevails in the face of your struggles with sin. His promise that death and sin with it will be swallowed up in victory prevails in the face of continued struggles with sin. In whatever ways that you have struggled with sin this past week or will struggle with sins in the week to come, those sins will not prevent God's promises from prevailing to you and to the church as a whole. And kids, I want you to get this. I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to sink your teeth into the sweetness of this reality. Your struggles with sin, if you have trusted in Jesus, will not keep God from keeping his promises to you. He has committed himself to you fully. He has given Jesus to die on your behalf. He has caused Jesus to rise again by the power of the Spirit. And that Spirit, if you've trusted in Christ, now dwells in you. And he will also cause you to rise from the dead on that last day. I I trust I wasn't raised particularly in a Christian family where we were talking about Scripture regularly and talking about God's law and talking about follow Jesus. But I'm assuming for you, if you've been raised in a household like that, you might be tempted to think that if you sin, you've kind of blown it. That's it, because what happens with mom and dad? They, if if they're honest, they, they probably sometimes respond to your sin with like outright anger, and they're just disappointed. And you start to think, oh, this, this is how God thinks about me. But but if you are in Jesus Christ, New Testament teaches us over and over again, God is fully pleased with you. Fully pleased. He, he, he rejoices over you with singing, Zephaniah says. So you can trust that God will also keep his promises to you, right? As Richard Sibbs so wonderfully put it, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. In your struggle with sin, don't forget that as numerous as your sins may be, his mercy is more. He kept his promise by sending his son to die for you and he will keep his promise by sending his son to gather you and bring you into his kingdom where there will be no more suffering or sin. And we will see there fully and completely that God's promises prevail over suffering and sin once and for all. I want you to listen. This mercy and grace from God through Jesus Christ is extended to you today if you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus came to save sinners, even the worst of sinners. One of the things that we see in our passage is the surprising reality that God chooses the most unexpected, God chooses the unlovely and unloved Leah to pour out his grace in giving her children, one of whom is the family line through whom the Messiah would come, Judah. You may think you're not the right fit for God, that God is looking for people who are better than you, and I just want to let you in on a little secret, none of us are the right fit for God. All of us in our sin were unlovely like Leah, and yet God showed mercy to us. There's no sin that puts you out of God's reach, no sin so shameful that he would be unwilling to save you. He is a God who takes away the reproach of his people. He takes away our shame and guilt. He removes the curse and places on us a crown. And friends, he will do that for you too. If you look around this room, he's done that for most of the people in this room and we'd love to talk to you about how he's done that for us and how he can do that for you too. The the call now for those who've trusted in Christ, who've experienced the reality that God's promises prevail over suffering and sin, the call for us now is to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's to work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, not to give into disunity and infighting like Leah and Rachel. It looks like rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who, who weep, rather than doing the opposite as they did throughout the chapter. It looks like speaking the truth in love, rather than lashing out in anger like Jacob did. It looks like keeping the marriage bed undefiled, turning away from sexual immorality, rather than welcoming it into their life like, or into your life like they did. It looks like remembering that God has promised us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and to be our ever-present help in times of trouble and temptation. And that's the call for us in the week ahead, to walk in a manner worthy of the good news that we've received in Jesus Christ, in recognition of the mercy and grace that God has shown us. And if we stumble and fall into sin, getting up, confessing it to the Lord and relying on his promise that if we confess our sins, he is righteous and just and will forgive us of our sins. And we can do that because we know that God's promises will prevail in the face of suffering and sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that there are no obstacles so big that you can't overcome them. Remind us of that today. Help us to embrace that truth and to even rejoice in the fact that the obstacle of death, which would seem to stand in the way of the accomplishment of your purposes, is the gateway to eternal life and the visible fulfillment of all of your promises to us in Christ. Help us to hold fast to those truths today. Keep us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.